Acts chapter 22. Now, we've um, just finished 10 week, just 10, with J. John. That finished on, on Wednesday. It was excellent time, particularly felt that the, the preaching, the, the proclamation of God's word was outstanding. On, on some evenings, particularly so, it was always good. And uh, the last few with the priority of God and just coming up to those last two or three commandments, reminding us of these very essential values of putting God first in our lives. And what I want to do this morning is, whether you've been just going along as a committed Christian, whether you're interested out of that, Whatever your background, you may have been a Christian for a while or or not for very long, or you may not even be a committed Christian. You may be just thinking about it, wondering about the Alpha. I hope this is relevant to all of you. I want to talk about what it is to be converted. And it is relevant to those of us who've been a Christian a while as well. So don't switch off, please, if you're a little bit longer in the tooth as a Christian like I am. Because I think you need to hear, we all need to hear, the facts of what it is to be a a real Christian. So I'm talking about converted this morning. And the Apostle Paul never ceased, it seems, to get pleasure or see importance in telling people how he became a Christian. And in a moment we're going to read from Acts 22, from verse 1 to 21. And we're going to read the story... Paul told in one setting about his conversion. But actually, even in Acts itself, you get three or four versions, at least three, of Paul's conversion told. And he would tell it in different settings. In Acts, you'll find him telling very important people in a very calm setting, like Felix Felix and Festus, the governors. But what we're looking at this morning is far from that. If I just give you a quick background, get the story, pick you up in the story... Paul has come to Jerusalem with the view of, I think, probably reporting back on his mission and building bridges a little bit with the Jewish Christians because he's been so effective amongst the Gentile world. He comes back and in talking to James and the brothers in Jerusalem, they say, look, it really help us to assure the Jews that you're not despising your Jewish background if you would have a, a take a vow and go into the temple and things like that. So Paul says, fine, I'm a Jew, that's I, I, my culture, I'm happy to do that, I love Jesus, but I can still go with that. So he goes into the temple. Now, out of that, there seems to be sparked trouble. There are people in Jerusalem who don't like him anyway and are out to get him. And they see him in the temple and they put two and two together and make about six. They, they think he's brought non-Jews into the temple. Whatever they accuse him of, a guy called Trophimus that he's taken him in, he hadn't at all. They start a riot. And a riot starts and Paul is grabbed by a mob. Now that is scary. And you, 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 the vivid sort of account in Acts 21, 22 rings bells. If you watch things like on the news last couple of weeks, watch something like Iran after the elections, and you see crowds in the street and trouble, crowd trouble, and then riot police. That's the sort of scene. Paul is gathered up by this mob, and we're told they start beating him. They start beating him to death. And the Roman commander of the garrison in Jerusalem, who are like the riot police, they're the people in charge, he comes running along with a whole uh, platoon of soldiers. I would imagine their armour shining in the sun. They probably draw their swords, which they probably use the broadside of, to like, like riot uh, clubs. That's how Roman soldiers probably did. They probably actually didn't cut people up, but 
they probably hit people with a broadsword. And they, you see the soldiers turn up and they break through the crowd and they grab Paul and they put him in chains. They assume he's a troublemaker, but they don't know what he's done. And they grab it and the crowd sort of a push back and the Roman commander gets hold of Paul and Paul immediately speaks to him in Greek. And the commander says, I didn't know you spoke Greek. I thought you were an Egyptian terrorist. That's what he thought. You're Egyptian terrorist. You can read it all for yourself. And Paul says, no, I'm not Egyptian. I'm a Jew from Tarsus. And of course I speak Greek. I'm a highly educated Jew. He doesn't say it in those words. So that's, he gives that signal to the commander. And immediately the Roman soldiers, are, the commander, is a little bit like, oh, we're dealing with a proper civilised guy here. So that's interesting what Paul does then. Then as he's being taken into the sort of barracks for safety, but partly for interrogation, as they go near there, the crowd's all milling around, kept back by the Roman soldiers. Paul says, can I speak to the crowd, please? And so the commander says, okay. So Paul turns around and he speaks to the crowd in Aramaic. Paul spoke very many languages. He spoke Aramaic, which is the local dialect, the local language there. And I think here, immediately, he gets the crowd's attention. It's quite interesting. As you read it, it says they all went quiet as he started speaking in Aramaic. You can think, oh, would that happen? I think it would. Use your imagination. Go back a few decades or so to, North, to Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland, Belfast. You've got a Republican mob who think they've got a sort of Protestant or a British person amongst them, and they're beginning to, and we've seen that happen too, beat people up terribly, kill them. And this mob is crowding, and suddenly this person speaks to them in Gaelic, speaks to them in Irish. Suddenly, even, well, we better listen, he's obviously fluent in our language, he's fluent in Irish. He speaks to this Republican mob in Belfast, say, that after his blood, says, hang on a minute, and the whole thing comes out in fluent Irish. So it gets their attention, you've got your imagination, that's a real situation. This is real, this is exactly what happened. It's recounted by Luke, and uh, this is what Paul said. Now, here's the interesting thing. What's the thing he says to a crowd? I've given you, painted you the picture, what does he say to them? Well, you're going to read it. He tells them his testimony. He tells them how he's changed and why he now follows Jesus. Let's read it. We've got Acts 22, verse 1. He said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defence. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near to Damascus, suddenly a bright light came from heaven and flashed around me. I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. 
he stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing them. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now at that point, the narrative tells us the crowd suddenly got angry again. You can read it for yourself. Because he was talking about the Gentiles and saying what we don't understand, they understood. This was for the Gentiles as much as it's for you, Jews. This is a Jewish mob, remember. This is for the Gentiles as much as it is for you. And at that point, they get angry again and he has to be taken into custody for his own safety. And the story moves on. But what I want to do this morning is to speak to you out of this testimony of Paul telling us what it meant for him to be converted and to become a real Christian, a follower of Jesus. Later in the New Testament, Paul tells us that his conversion, although it was, he doesn't use these words, we use, I use these words, it was a dramatic and unique conversion. He tells us his conversion was an, a pattern or an example for others. And he wanted everybody to know about it. You can read it in 1 Timothy 1. I think it will go on the screen. Thank you. 15 and 16. And I'll read it to you. This is what it says. This is Paul writing many, many years after this. Several years, anyway, after this. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Paul says, my conversion, my testimony is an example for everybody else. And it's encapsulated in scripture, timelessly held there, not only in the account we've read, several others, and in this particular verse, Paul says, I'm an example that if God can save me, he can save anyone. He saved someone who was set in his ways, angry against Jesus, very, very hateful about the church, actually responsible indirectly, perhaps directly, for the death and imprisonment of many Christians and who was very arrogant, very proud, very sure he was right. And, God said, and, and Paul said, if God can change me, if God can get hold of me, he can change anyone. God can change anyone. Anyone can be saved. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That is his whole job description. That's the whole purpose of his coming. And Paul says, my conversion is an example for everybody else, Jew and Gentile, that that's what Jesus is about, saving sinners. Hallelujah. That's what the story of Jesus is all about. You can argue about whether he's teaching, and is he a good teacher, was he like a Gandhi or a Buddha? People miss the point altogether. The whole point about Jesus is he came to save sinners. And that's available for all of us, 
And that's the fundamental that we need to understand. We needed saving and he saved us. Now we'll see a little more about it as we go through. This is relevant, as I said, to all of us, whatever our situation is. We need to know what does it mean to be saved? What's, what's Paul referring to here? Well, we know it's the story we've just read. Here in Timothy, he's referring back to it. What's converted mean? It's a right word to use. Well, in the dictionary, it says this, to convert is to turn about or to change. It means to totally change the way you live and the direction you're going in. It's not a superficial thing. It's a much more profound thing than just changing your mind for a while. But actually, the dictionary definition doesn't really help us that much. And that's why God gives us stories, and he gives us a story of Paul here. Because when we look at the stories, and the Bible's full of stories, real-life stories, it's full of them, because we learn from them. And we learn from the story what it means to be converted. And we're going to do that with four simple sort of hooks this morning in the next few minutes. We're going to look at four questions asked in this story we've read of Paul. And we're going to use them to understand what it means to be truly converted. Even ask yourself, if you've been a Christian for years, do I really live in the light of what it really means to be a Christian? This is not merely for those who are inquiring alone. This is for all of us to think. What does it really mean? Well, here are the four questions I want to do. Here's the first one, anyway. The first question I'll pick up is verse 7. Why do you persecute me? That's the first question. Now, that's a question asked by Jesus to, as he's called then, Saul. But we'll keep calling him Paul for ease. This is a question asked by Jesus to Paul. Now, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us this, that when the story starts, Paul is not in any way a natural follower of Jesus. Paul is actually antagonistic to Jesus. He's quite hateful to Jesus and his followers. Christianity was not for him. Definitely not for him. Now, many people start like that. In fact, all of us, really, to some degree or other. We don't naturally start loving Jesus and following Jesus. We start often quite antagonistic, sometimes more like apathetic. Sometimes like, well, I'm not interested, I don't want to talk about it. But sometimes quite cross and quite antagonistic to Jesus. It's often Jesus himself. You see, Jesus says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? It's an interesting thing he says. It's often Jesus himself that disturbs people. Many people in modern Britain, if you talk to them today, are happy to talk about God and they're happy to talk about spirituality or maybe life after death or debate religion. Probably more free to do that than they would have been 40, 50 years ago. But you start talking about Jesus and what the Bible says about Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus who bore the sins of the world, Jesus who's the Saviour and Lord, the way, the truth, the life. And people do not get get it. They just get cross sometimes. They get quite antagonistic. Jesus sets things off. He really does. Have you ever wondered why Jesus is so controversial? Why people don't like talking about Jesus Christ the way Christians do or the way the Bible does, to be honest? Why does Jesus stir up such emotions? Why don't we swear using Jesus' name? Why don't we swear using Muhammad or Buddha or something like that? Because Jesus isn't the same as them. He's not just another respected historical figure. There is a power in the name of Jesus. 
there is something very fundamental, something that goes on when you start talking about Jesus. He's a, he's a divider in some ways. Are you for him or against him? Yeah, you, for a while you can debate it, for a while you can be interested in it. But in the end, Paul was coming to a point here. It's not the first time he knew about Jesus. He knew a lot about Jesus and hated him. He knew what they taught. He'd heard Stephen preach about Jesus, but he didn't like it. But this was going to come to a change time. And he was going to change from someone who actually got quite angry about Jesus to someone who began to follow Jesus. And it's quite interesting to see that. But I just say to you, ask yourself, I don't know where you're at, why does it disturb you sometimes when we talk about Jesus? Well, I think it's for this, and this is another part of the first thing I want to say. This is a point at which we notice Paul's conscience is touched. Now, in real conversion, your conscience will be touched. Somewhere, you will get uncomfortable. It's very difficult to imagine you becoming a genuine Christian and feeling comfortable all the way through. This is really cool and doesn't bother me at all. Because actually, something somewhere should bother you. Maybe you feel uneasy about your life. Maybe you feel guilty when you talk to Christians. Maybe when you come to pray or to worship or, or talk with, about Jesus, there's something uneasy in you. When I, Paul was like that. It says he was going around angry, breathing out threatenings. What, what's the big deal? Why are you so angry, Paul? And it says in, it, he, was, he was really disturbed by all this. And he'd watched Stephen die in an incredible way. He'd watched this man radiant at his death, forgiving those who had killed him. He'd probably seen a similar grace in other Christians. And there was something very uneasy in Paul. And Jesus stirs it up. (laughs) Yep. Because that's going to be a door to hope. That's going to be a door to hope. Actually, if you feel uncomfortable about something, don't turn from it. Don't try and suppress it. Face it. Because often it's the Holy Spirit saying, come on, there's an issue here and we need to resolve it. I want to bring you into myself. Our conscience does need to be awakened. We need to be saved, but we need, we, we know, we need to know we need to be saved. You know, what's, I don't feel like I need saving. Well, God will help you to know that because you need to know God. You don't know him. You need him. And but for his grace, there's no hope. You need forgiving. I hope we all know that we needed forgiving. Sometimes you find people who are Christians and you almost wonder if they ever really realized what a rotter they were before they got saved. Do you realize that without Christ, you have no hope? You were dead in your sins. And somehow that has to be part of your whole psyche, if I can put it that way, as a Christian. I needed this. I needed saving. I am not a gift to God and he got a good deal with me. I actually needed to be saved. I was wretched and blind and poor. And you need to be aware of it. That's what happens to Paul. Let's go on to the next question. This is in verse 8. Who are you, Lord? Paul asks. Now we've seen his conscience touch. Now we see his mind is engaged. And you know, that's an important part of conversion. You do not put your brain in the dustbin to become a Christian. You actually need to think about your faith. You do need to use your mind. You need to think, who is Jesus? Is he real? Does the Bible's telling what the Bible tells me makes sense? Does it tie together? Does it sort of connect with me? 
I think that's a vital part of becoming a Christian. That's why I'm so delighted with the Alpha that has developed over recent years. And if you haven't yet gone on an Alpha course, do go on our one that's coming up on Wednesday. It's a short one, actually. Only five weeks, I think, isn't it? Five? Yeah, five weeks. Normally, they're a little longer than that, but obviously the summer break. But come along because you need to know about Jesus. You should think about Jesus. Who are you, Lord, is a valid question. What am I talking? What am I dealing with here? Christianity is not merely about an emotionalism. There is a thinking. You need to see stuff. You need to believe truth about Jesus. We all do. Our whole life as a Christian is founded on truths we believe. It's not just feelings. It's not just vague experiences. Good experiences, not vague experiences. You may have had an emotional and powerful experience. I've had some, thank God, in my life. But in the end... We root it in things we believe. Paul didn't root it all in this one Damascus Road experience. He knew things about Jesus, which he was able later in the wonderful books he wrote in the New Testament to clearly teach. He knew all about Jesus. And this is a fundamental part of becoming a Christian. The big issue with Christianity is not going to church or what's church. It's not Is this one religion against another? Let's have a big debate. The big issue is what do you do with Jesus? What do you know about Jesus? Do you believe what you find in the Bible about Jesus? Do you understand who he is and what he's done? These are the big issues. It's all about Jesus Christ. And you must get yourself grounded on that. It's not about an emotional experience, though the emotions will be touched. It's not about... Joining a church, though I trust you will, it is actually about Jesus all the time. And it stays like that, brothers and sisters, it stays like that. It's still all about Jesus for me, 40 plus years after I became a Christian. It's all about Jesus and who he is. Paul uses a word to Jesus in this first experience, he calls him Lord. Lord. Now that was a fundamental change for Paul, the Apostle. He would have probably used, I should imagine, quite derogatory terms about Jesus prior to this. Jesus of Nazareth the carpenter, he might well have done the equivalent to swear about him. I don't know, he hated him. But now he suddenly uses the word Lord, and that is so important. Jesus is Lord is the essence of Christianity. It's the essence of true conversion. That you can say, Jesus is my Lord. That's what you, if you want to test yourself, do a little litmus test on your faith. Do you believe and live by that truth, Jesus is Lord? Because that's the summary of it. Now, Paul, because he was such a wonderfully gifted man, was later able to put what he came to believe in Jesus into some wonderful words which are in Philippians. I'm going to read them to you. Because this is what he came to believe and know was true. Who are you, Lord? Well, this was the answer as to who Jesus was. We won't, I'll just read it to you. It's from Philippians 2 and verse 5. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So he's talking about Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that is what Paul came to believe about Jesus. And he believed it from the earliest moments, but he probably didn't articulate it clearly until a little later. But that is who Jesus is. And if you echo in your spirit that, as, you re- as I read it, you think, yeah, that's what I believe about Jesus. That is true conversion. Now, you might not get there straight away. As I said, I don't think this is the first time Paul had ever heard of Jesus on the Damascus Road. It clearly wasn't. He'd heard Stephen eloquently speak about Jesus. And sometimes we go through a process. In fact, we nearly always do. But there comes a moment when you see it and you believe it. I see that Jesus is the Son of God. I really believe he died for our sins. I believe Jesus Christ is who he said he was. And I believe he died for me. And I own him as my Lord. Now that is a heart decision And for Paul, it happened on Damascus Road. There had been a big build-up, very colourful and dangerous, dramatic sort of time beforehand. But that was the turning point. And there needs to be a turning point for all of us. And we end up being able to echo and amen those wonderful verses in Philippians. So let's look at the next question. Verse 10. What shall I do, Lord? The essence of Christian conversion is action. You see, his conscience has been touched, his mind has been illumined, but now Paul's will is affected by his conversion. His will is affected. What do you want me to do, Lord? In awed gratitude, in in dazed amazement, he's saying, you're real. I believe that you are what you said you are. I thought you weren't, and now I see it. And I once hated you, now I love you. What do you want me to do, Lord? He submitted his will to Jesus. You know, that's a very important part of really being a Christian. And we have a slightly troubled situation in modern world because we have a lot of very subjective stuff. We love, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, subjective. We love feely stuff. You know, I feel, oh, that really does something for me. Oh, I get a really good feeling. You get a really good feeling out of a whole range of things. We had this tragic death of... um, of Michael Jackson, and one of the papers said, I mean, obviously we don't know if this is true, but that he, he had pethidine addiction, which is a, a medical drug. Pethidine, they inject you with as a painkiller. Now, I once had pethidine when I had gallstones. And uh, it was, a gallstone moving through your uh, bile duct is agony. I had it happen to me several times, and it really is agony. It really hurts, big time. And one of the doctors who came and visited me gave me a pethidine injection in my backside, if you want to know. Well, I tell you, pethidine is nice. Pethidine is nice. I mean, within minutes, the pain had got... I was happy, and I was floating. I hadn't slept for 24 hours, and I just felt everybody was lovely. And I was just going to go to sleep like that. Ah, thank you. Isn't that weird? That's a chemical... It's not just about feelings. I mean, there are lots of things that can give you good feelings, including wonderful, genuine, spiritual things. But in the end, you have to follow Jesus. There's action. 
It's not just emotion. It's not just enthusiasm. It's commitment to Jesus. It involves submitting to Jesus as Lord. Desire to please him above everything else. And it's not arduous. If you really do it right, if you love Jesus, it's a joy. It's tough sometimes. But it's not about, well, I've got to do this. It's I love him and I'm going to obey him. But it is that serious. It is real. And it does have a real impact on our lives. I want to obey his will. I want to trust him for the future. I'm not going to go the way of the world. I'm not just going to do stuff uh, like everybody else. I'm going to do it the way Jesus wants me to do it. Lord, what shall I do? My life is in your hands. Lord, you are in charge now. And I want to see from your word what I should do. And I want to hear directly. And of course you will have, I hope, joyful, wonderful experiences. But actually, in the end, it's a decision of the will to be a real Christian. That I am a follower of Jesus. And let's look at the last question, because it's sort of related, a little different. Verse 16. Ananias asked Paul, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? You see, real faith, as I said, is action. And you cannot really say you believe in Jesus if it makes no difference to your life. And I say that deliberately and carefully, because that needs to be said to everybody in the room, not nastily, but just soberly. If it makes no impact on your life, it does raise a question as to how seriously you believe in Jesus. And that's just a fact. We're talking about true conversion. And it inevitably brings change, as we've seen. What should I do, Lord? And that impacts in actions that are worked out in life. There is a cost to following Jesus. In Paul's conversion, we've seen that his conscience is touched. His mind's illumined. His will is affected. And his life is changed. That's the fourth point. His life is changed. His will is affected. Lord, what do you want me to do? And Jesus tells him what he wants, and it's going to change everything. His life is changed. Everything turned out very differently from the career and the lifestyle that Paul had planned for himself. Everything turned out very differently from this point on. Now, some of the changes were immediate. Here's one. He was baptised. He tells us about it here. You get a more full description of it elsewhere. He was baptized. Now, baptism was a sign that you had finished with your old life and you were following Jesus with a new life, that you were dead to the old and alive to Jesus. Now, Paul is baptized a few days after his Damascus Road experience, three days after, I think. He's baptized by one of the disciples who he would have gone to Damascus to try and arrest and imprison. How big a change is that? I think that's pretty big. So one of the guys that he would have been breathing out threatenings, I'm going to get Ananias if I don't find him and he's going to be in prison. One of those guys would actually have been saying, Paul, you need baptizing. And Paul would have said, yeah, baptize me. That's a change. Do you know, baptism is still one of the first challenges often about get on with it and obey Jesus. I'm amazed at how people hesitate about baptism. And yet I'm not amazed either because it's a big deal. But baptism is one of the signs that Jesus is your Lord and that you have changed. And it says, I'm dead to that old life and I want to follow Jesus. And it says it publicly and openly and sort of like you nail your colours to the mast. That's why if you haven't been baptised as a believer and you are one who's put your faith in Jesus, can I say to you, what are you waiting for? 
What are you waiting for? Get on with it. So I'm waiting to feel good about it. Jesus told you to do it anyway. Well, I'm waiting just for certain friends to agree that it might be a good idea or my family to be a bit happier. They may not get happier. Might be waiting a long time. It's got to be a bold move of following Jesus. Now, as it happens, we have a baptismal service here on the 12th of July. And if you are not baptised as a believer, can I encourage you to sign up for that? You can talk to myself or Neil or Mark uh, or Dave Lockyer, many of whom are not in this room at the moment. But uh, are any of them here? Because I know Dave's on, on Farmer's Market. Dave Thompson, by the way, is at Hook preaching. Oh, I can't see Neil. He's out with the children probably or something. I saw him earlier. Anyway, it would be me then, hadn't it? Poor old me. But uh, one of the elders or leaders here, just ask someone about it. You don't have to speak to us first and foremost. You could ask someone in an orange T-shirt. But we'll just make sure you've got your name down. And you, you, you need to be baptised if you're a believer. You need to, that's one of the early things that shows that obedience. Here's another in, in, quick change. This independent, proud Pharisee accepted guidance from this nobody called Ananias. In other words, he was humble and teachable. And Ananias, who he would have liked to have thrown in prison a week earlier, comes to him. He's not one of the twelve. He's not Peter or John or somebody like that. He's a nobody, really. It's the only time he appears in the Bible. And he comes to this proud, arrogant somebody. And Paul was a somebody. He was like a high, high graduate of Gamaliel's school. He was a committed Pharisee. And he was a very assertive persecutor of the church. He was, yeah... He was a fast-track promotion for hardline Judaism. That's what he would have been. And actually, he is now prepared to receive from this nobody. And he does, humbly. The guy tells him to be baptised and tells him other things as well. That's a change. Suddenly, you're open to being taught. Suddenly, you just say, I need to know more about Jesus. You tell me. I don't mind. I don't have to hear it from John Groves, Terry Virgo, the Pope. You know, just help me. Help me understand. An ordinary disciple helps you understand. That's what happened to Paul. That's what will happen to you. But you won't, want to, you won't struggle with that. Real conversion means you're teachable and humble. There's another noticeable change straight away. The last one I want to mention. He enthusiastically wants to share his faith. He does it here, although this is a bit later. But actually he's trying to do it right away. And that's what gets him into trouble, which he summarises in his testimony. Because he goes around telling people, look, I've, I've come to follow Jesus. I used to hate him, now I love him. And actually the Jews don't like that, as they continue not to. And he has to be whipped away quickly in a, in, and escaped overnight. But the reason is Paul is not quiet about his faith. He doesn't keep it all to himself, private, don't want too many people to know. He wants people to know. And I challenge you, if you're truly converted, you want to tell people. You don't necessarily need to be an evangelist by gifting or a particularly able speaker, but you want to share your faith. I hope that's true of you. If it isn't, test your pulse this morning, because that's part of real conversion. That I just love people, other people to come to know Jesus. I want other people to know about Jesus. Do you want other people to know about Jesus? You do. I know you're scared, so am I, but do you want to be able to tell them about Jesus? Yes. That's a good sign. That means quite a lot of you are converted. Because actually, that is part of it. You almost can't help it. And you love it when you get an opportunity. And you love it when you notice that maybe even a national figure has got some interest in Jesus. You think, oh, that's great. It's not just because you want them following your team. It's a different feel. And when someone at work 
is interested. You say, I want to tell you about Jesus. You can't always bulldoze in there. That's not right. But you always want to share it. It's healthy. It's normal Christianity. It was for Paul and it is for us. There's something holistic about being converted. It's not a private faith. It's not an intellectual persuasion. It affects your whole life. Your morals, your relationships, your work life, your conversation, your home life, your money, your time. Everything is changed when you're converted. Because it lines up with Jesus. It's not about church and rules. It's about Jesus. And you line things up. Now, as I said to you, there was a process that went on for Paul. There is for everybody. His case, it had been a very tumultuous process. He'd been persecuting Christians. Now, suddenly, he'd met Jesus. It is dramatic. Not everybody is dramatic as that. But there comes a point when someone says to Paul, what are you waiting for? Let's go. And I think something like that happens to all of us. All of us. It may be a bit of a slow burn, but there'll come a point when it's as though God says to you, what are you waiting for? Obey Jesus. Get baptised. Commit yourself. Or maybe for more mature Christians, put Jesus first in that area where you've been struggling. What are you waiting for? Make that quality decision about your job, your relationship, your money, your time, your commitment. What are you waiting for? Jesus is Lord. Now let's go for it and follow him. These are subjects that deal with eternity, that deal with life. Basically, Ananias says to Paul, this is God, the real God. He's opened your eyes to the truth about Jesus. So what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptised. That's my summary of what Ananias says, and it's pretty accurate in our language. That's what he says. Get up and get on, wash your sins away and follow Jesus. Now, maybe somebody here needs to hear that this morning because they've not really yet committed to Jesus. You've been on the edge. You've, you know a lot about it. Well, don't, what are you waiting for? Make it this morning, that you follow him. But as I've already indicated, there's lots of things where it can apply. There may be some of us that are struggling with other areas of the Lordship of Christ in our lives. We've got the conscience disturbed. We've got uh, that sort of understanding of Jesus, but we're still on the edge of making that decision. What are you waiting for? Follow Jesus. Commit your life to him. These four areas are always fundamental in our conversion and our ongoing Christian life. That our conscience is sensitive to want to obey Jesus. Our conscience is sensitive to sin and to things that displease him. That we have a fundamental focus on Jesus Christ. We understand who he is and we follow him. We are determined to submit to his will in our lives. And our lives are changed because... Whatever we do, work-wise, wherever our money comes from or anything like that, our whole lives are configured around our faith in Jesus Christ. In a sense, it dictates what we do. And that's right. That's what it was for Paul, and that's what it is for me, and that's what it is for you. That's what it is for any convert who follows Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's worship him for a few minutes, just before we close. We have slightly tight on time, but we can have five minutes. We did have a long DVD, which we knew we'd have. But let's just have a couple of songs, please, guys. And let's finish by really declaring Jesus is Lord. Let's let them come up. And I want to... uh, I want us just to have maybe a couple of songs that really declare who Jesus is. 
And just as they're finding their, 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 their song, I want to remind all of us, all of us, Christian or, or on the edge, or most of us will be Christians, that Jesus is always number one in our lives, brothers and sisters. Listen to these verses from Colossians chapter 2, just two verses. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. You going to join me in? I want us to declare that together this morning. I want to say it again. Let's stand together. Let's stand together. If you're a real Christian, you'll, I hope, be able to amen with us with me in our final few moments. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. That's what, if you go get anything else out this morning, will you get that out of it, please? that you're going to go out of here saying, I received Jesus Christ as Lord, I'm going to continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith, and overflowing with thankfulness. Amen. Let's worship him together.